When you think about it, Christmas, of course, comes only once a year. So there's only a few weeks out of the year when we have the opportunity to share those familiar carols and hear uh, new takes on the story of Jesus presented uh, musically. And it's just a reminder that for our church family and our community, we have a, a very unique opportunity, a great opportunity, a week, this next weekend, this coming weekend, Saturday night and Sunday evening, 7 o'clock. We call it Sounds of Christmas. It involves the people that lead us every week in worship as well as others who gather and join together and spend many hours putting together uh, the story of Christmas. So those tickets are available. They do not cost anything. We just ask that you claim a ticket for the night you want to come so we'll know how to prepare for the crowds that will be here. Hope you're having a good Advent season. Hope that you are preparing, preparing yourself physically, taking care of those details, and preparing yourself, as we just mentioned today, in lighting the second candle of Advent, preparing your mind, going back to the Bible, thinking through, intellectually preparing yourself for Christmas. We're taking a a little different spin on getting things started, our thoughts turned toward God's Word during these days. There's a cartoon that is out every day in newspapers all over the world called The Family Circus. It's been around for many, many years, a couple of generations almost, it seems. Bill Keane, the cartoonist, who has allowed us to come into the home of a typical family. That's how they're portrayed mom and a dad and children, pets, and in the working and taking care and raising children and the interaction of going to school and celebrating Christmas, we learn things, we laugh, we smile. Sometimes we may shed a tear over what this cartoon series teaches us. We look at one today that came out fairly recently. It was last year. It's one where you see... Big sister's reading to little brother, reading the Christmas story, and it says it's good that Jesus was born in a stable, and then the byline is because when the shepherds came, they had a place to park their sheep. Makes sense. I actually came across one in the paper just this week in the Dallas Morning News that would have been wonderful to have included, but uh, we prepare things a little bit sooner than just a few days before. We actually do. Okay. But it's the little boy there, Uh, I think he's grown up or maybe his big brother, and he's heading to bed, and he says, the best thing about going to bed is you're one day closer to Christmas. That's true. This one, though, a child's viewpoint basically tells us something that Scripture takes very seriously. It's good that Jesus was born in a stable because it meant the shepherds had a place to park their sheep when they came to visit, which basically tells me that involved in the story, in the events of Christmas, someone was covering all the details. Someone was in charge of things. And we know full well that Christmas was not the invention of retail marketers. They seem to have cut their own place. They seem to have taken the message of Christmas and turned it into something entirely different. And it is sad 
to comment that for many people, Christmas is simply nothing more than wondering what you're going to get as well as what you're expected to give. But Christmas was not invented by the world. Christmas was in the very thought and the very heart of God, our Heavenly Father. And when the time came for Jesus to be born, indeed, the events of Christmas, as Susan mentioned in their family's mindful presentation, uh, preparation for Christmas, that it's all about covering those details. It's all about God who was working behind the scenes and had everything in place. I want us to take a passage that talks about those details. It's not a typical Christmas story. I would encourage you to read those passages again and again this season of the year. It's Luke 2 and Matthew 2 that tell the story of the birth of Jesus. John chapter 1 tells about the coming of Jesus, but from a particularly different perspective. His way of saying Jesus was born was to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But read those passages. But when Paul the Apostle wrote to the churches of Galatia, and in the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 4 and reading through verse 7, though the word Christmas is not there, This passage tells us that God had all the details covered. And if we can learn anything today from God's Word, it would be that if we will trust the God who has all the details covered, if we could just put our faith and step out in obedience, knowing that God has the details covered, how much happier would you and I be? How much more fulfilled would our lives be? Because God has the details covered. It's Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4. Let's read God's word. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That opening phrase is what this passage really hinges upon. In the fullness of time. Some translations will say, at the right moment, or at the right time. Paul, by the fourth chapter of this letter to the churches of Galatia, has already built a case, has already pled his, made his plea, if you will. The whole issue for writing this letter in the first place was addressing a group of believers who didn't trust that God had the details covered. And so they were tempted to go back to the way they were living before they met Jesus, before they began to love him. They went back into a system of legalism for the most part. They went back to the same old struggles because they couldn't let go and let God, some might say. They couldn't trust God to cover the details. They couldn't put their trust in him. And Paul is writing this letter to tell them that they can trust God. 
that they can trust in the Lord who created all things, who put us here, we were made in His image, and though we sinned in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, not a moment too early, not a moment too late, I remember the pastor I grew up under saying time and time again when he came to this passage. Not a moment too early, not a moment too late. In the fullness of time, the details were all laid out. The details were all covered. And that pertains in particular to this season of the year, to Christmas. So if, if God does indeed have the details covered then there are, basic, there are some basic questions that we ask to make sure of that. If you're ever filling out an application for something or you've ever got to verify something, if someone's wanting to check up and hold you accountable or me accountable to make sure that the details have been covered for whatever project I'm responsible for or whatever the goal is we're, we're looking toward, whatever it is we're working toward as a team or even as a church, there are some fundamental questions that we ask about the one who's supposed to cover the details. What would they be? Let's apply them to this passage as we move through it word for word. First question that comes to my mind is a what question. What was the problem? What was the problem? Now, I just said the reason Paul wrote this letter to this group of churches, Galatia's not one place, it's a whole area. So there were several congregations addressed in this letter. Paul wrote to these people in these scattered churches because they had put their faith in Christ, but their problem was they were tempted to go back because they couldn't trust God. They couldn't rest in Him. They didn't, for some reason, think He had the details all arranged and in line. He didn't know what He was doing, basically. That's what they felt. That's how they were living. But behind that, the real ultimate problem was the fact that you've got a world that's spinning out of control. You've got a world in desperate need. In the fullness of time, not a moment too early, not a moment too late, what was going on in the first century when Paul wrote about this fullness of time, about the coming of Jesus? Well, you've got a world that was in desperate need. And folks, all you have to do you can, it, it's made so much easier today with the, with the advent of the internet and digital searches. You can go to a search engine. You can Google. That's just, that's a verb in our vocabulary. I didn't know until a few years ago. But you can run a computer search on this issue of the, of the climate of living in the first century. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find source upon source, written records from the first century, a little bit before and a little bit after, that paint the picture of a society that was desperate. Religions, the old stay religions that were around in the first century were on their way out. People didn't trust in religion anymore. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That in this time, the first century... Philosophies that had been held up high. The, the great scholars of the Greek and the Roman Empire. People like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. All of their writings that we know very little about. They were widely read. But even those classic philosophers were... No one read them anymore. People were desperate. Things were, were pressing upon them. The whole climate was one of anticipation, anticipating someone or something to come along that was going to deliver the world, 
That, now, I'm not saying everyone felt this way. There's no reason, no, no way you could say that, that, you know, the entire world in the first century was just desperate for a deliverer. But I'm just telling you, the written sources tell us that things had changed. When the Greek Empire came along in around 330 B.C. and the Roman Empire swallowed it up a century or two later, things began to be even more restless. There were no more real leaders to trust in. So what was going on? Well, there was a world in need. And against that background, in the fullness of time, my next question about details would be, well, who came to set things right? What was going on? What was the issue? The issue was a world in need. Who then came along, who was helping to cover the details, who provided just the right thing. And in here it's a person in this instance, who came to set things right. And the same verse says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, that's to tell us that Jesus was human. Born under the law. That's Paul's way of saying he was a Jew. Jesus came into this world, born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. He's not making a case here. The the Scripture teaches the virgin conception, the virgin birth. Here he's just identifying to us that Jesus came and he was born fully human as well as being fully God. He was God's son. He was both. That's the great mystery. We accept it. He was fully God and fully man. He was born under the law. He was born into the climate of the Jewish way of life. He lived under those regulations. He is the one who came to make things right. But I would take it a step farther here, further, that we could really say Christ's birth was no accident. Rather, Christ's birth was an appointment. I want you to think about that for a minute. The very birth of Jesus. These words that in the fullness of time, not a moment too early, not a moment too late, Christ wasn't born just happenstance. He wasn't just another one to add to the population of the world in the first century, though it was quite a bit less than it is now. But his birth was a divine appointment. Now think about it. Why did God cover the detail of taking care of what was wrong with us, a world that was sin-sick. And who did he send? His son, Jesus. He came at a time in history that was the perfect moment. That's what I think this passage is telling us. It was the perfect time. Why? Well, you had a Roman empire that had built a system of roads. They're not anything like what we have today. Thank goodness. No HOV lanes. No potholes. They had a Roman system of roads that connected the entire world, that part of the known world at least. They had what is called the Pax Romana, Latin for the Roman peace. And what it meant was when Rome came in and took over the known world, they enforced the law of the Roman Empire, which meant that personals people's personal rights were protected by this Roman law. Of all the horror stories of the Roman Empire, and there are plenty of them, one thing that they did that made it the perfect moment for the birth of Jesus was there was a peace. There was an enforced rule of law. 
that came from the Roman Empire. All kinds of things, not even to mention the language. The fact that with the Greek Empire that came before the Roman Empire, there were two languages, the Greek language and the Roman language, the Latin language, the language of the Romans, that made it to where when Jesus came to this earth, there was a means to communicate with the world. You see, God had the details covered. And we look back and we might say, well, wouldn't it have been much more advantageous if Jesus were to have come when we had this fantastic way to spread the word through our own means of communication? And indeed, we should do that. But when the world was at a desperate point in the first century, when spiritual hunger was everywhere, when there was no one to give an answer, when the world was looking for a deliverer, God at that moment the moment that was not too early and not too late, sent forth who? Sent forth His Son, born in a time where the church could get a footing in this world and tell the story of Jesus. See, He's got the details covered. Well, there's another question that has to do with details, and that's why. You know, what was wrong? World's in trouble. People are sin-sick. People are, are lost. Who? Jesus came, God's own son, born of a woman, human, born under the law, a Jew. But why did he come? Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That he might redeem. Redeem is a unique word in the Bible. It's a word that goes back to that Roman Empire. It literally refers to a transaction when you purchased the life and the rights to a slave. Conservative estimates say that there were 60 million people who were classified as slaves. Slave in the sense that you did not own property, you did not belong to yourself, you had no rights, you belonged to someone else. And when the market would come, when the days of the market would come where they would buy and sell people, they did. In some parts of the world, they still do. But you had the option, if you redeemed, if you paid the price for a slave, that slave, he or she became your property. And you had two options. You could either keep that person for your own slave, or you could set them free. Paul says, why did Jesus come? He came to redeem us. To redeem us what? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's a whole lot going on here. Everyone in that first century, when they read these words, Jesus came to redeem. Oh, I know that word. That's the word that refers to the buying and selling of human life. Maybe someone who read these words remembered that they were bought and sold. And maybe their story didn't end up like Paul says, God's ultimate plan is for our lives. Maybe families were torn apart because of someone redeeming, buying your life, but choosing to make you a slave and to send you far away. You see, God's got the details covered in the why 
is simply that Jesus came to buy us, yes, but not so that he could keep us in bondage and in slavery, but he bought us so that he could set us free. We could be released from that bondage. And then he uses another unusual term for his day, one that was well known, one that we know of today. He refers to adoption. He says we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption in our day and time has this idea for the most part. A couple wants children. They can't have children on their own. And so they go to an agency and they work through the process. And a baby or a toddler or a child is assigned to them. And they adopt that child into their family. That's what most of us think of when we think of adoption today. That's the way it is in our day and time. Not so in the first century. Adoption in this sense was a legal maneuver. It was a legal transaction where, yes, just like we talk about in our day and time, a person could adopt and bring someone into their family that was not of their blood, that was not a natural-born child. But it was also a ceremony that the Romans had where you could take your own child and go through a process where you set them up as an adopted child. Why? Because in that part of the world, a natural-born child could be disowned. If my own children disappointed me, I could disown them. But if I had an adopted child in the first century world, the relationship that I initiated with that child in adoption guaranteed that I could never disown them. That's what history tells us. That's what the sources of the first century paint a picture of as to why adoption was such a... a, a powerful term. Because if I was a natural born child and my father chose to bring me into the family and give me that designation of adoption, it meant that nothing could ever happen where I could be disowned. And if I was outside the family and a family wanted to bring me in and took me through that process of adoption, the same thing applied. I could never be disinherited. You see, God's got the details covered. Because Paul uses those very terms that these people knew in their day and time to describe spiritual victories and spiritual things. That God sent forth His Son, Jesus. And why did Jesus come? That He might redeem us. You know what's amazing to me? Is that redemption where He sets me free? It kind of has a little twist to it. That the process of me being delivered means that I serve God. You ever thought about that? That it says Jesus came to redeem us and he could have set us free or brought us into bondage. Well, he sets us free, but the process of setting us free is found when we serve the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We understand when we're bond servants of Jesus what true freedom really is. See, God, God's got it all covered. He's got the details down. Look at verse 6. Are there anything, anything else here we need to cover? Any other details? Just a couple. He says, because you were sons, God sent forth His Spirit, 
God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Any other details? Yes. Folks, when, when the Scripture says in the fullness of time, and we focused all these moments upon the fact that Jesus came into this world at the perfect moment. Everything was just right. You think through it. You go back and you research that time in the world. It was the perfect moment because it was God's timing in the fullness of time. But don't you ever forget that in the fullness of time also has another meaning. And that is that one day Jesus will return. And he will return just like he was born in the fullness of time. He will come at just the right moment. When Jesus returns to this earth and what we call the second coming, when we see him again, when all things are wrapped up and time is no more as we count it today and as we live it today, that too will happen in God's timing, in the fullness of time. He's got the details worked out. We don't have to sweat it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to predict it. We're told not to. We're simply to live in the relationship of full sonship and daughtership, full heirs of God. Because God has the details worked out. And so what does it all really come back to? Paul didn't throw that little phrase in there in verse 6, just happenstance, where he said, because of all this, we're able to look to our heavenly Father. And he uses an Aramaic word. That was the language that Jesus spoke. Abba. It's transliterated. It's, it's left as it is, even in our English translations. Abba, Father. In a sense, it's almost as though he's saying, God is our heavenly Father. That is his title. He is Father, capital F, Father. But we're brought into a relationship of adoption and because Jesus has filled our hearts with freedom because he came to redeem us. We address God and we have a relationship with him where we can call him Abba. In our day and time, maybe you do, maybe you don't. It really doesn't matter, but many times for your parents or maybe as a parent, if you're a parent or somehow or another, you... You have a handle or a name that you're called that's a term of endearment. When I was growing up, it, it, was, it was that way in my family. Lawson Hatfield is my father, was my father. That was his relationship to me. But I did not call him father. I called him daddo. Now, the reason I called him daddo was because my dad couldn't spell very well. And he would send us postcards when he was on trips. And he thought he was being cool in that day and signing it Daddy-O. There was kind of a language back in the 60s. where Daddy-O was kind of a hip. Well, he forgot and just put Dad-O and forgot the Y. He couldn't spell. So he became Dad-O to my older sister and my older brother. This is the man who, when my sister was born... Daddo sent out birth announcements. He took care of a mother didn't have anything to do with it, where he announced the birth of their daughter, Grace Marie. The only problem is her name is Grace Elizabeth. Yeah. 
Go figure. It's Dado. When my older brother Jerry was born, Daddy was pastor of First Baptist Church in Dequeen, Arkansas. And that was a, a small town where the church, the First Baptist Church, had a steeple, much like ours, but they had a chime set that would play chimes. And you could hear those chimes all over the place. Well, when Jerry was born, Daddo serenaded the entire town of Dequeen with the chimes announcing the birth of my big brother. Only problem is that was at midnight when he did that. That was my father. It was Daddo. He was Daddo. He would go on trips. He would come back. He would buy small gifts for each one of us. We had to go through this ritual, this routine that I can remember. We had to stand in front of him, hold out our hands, close our eyes, stand on one foot. My sister basically got the scarf to add to the collection of scarves she had. Jerry and I would always get candy. No problems there. My mother always got this costume jewelry that for some reason she always lost or broke the day after he gave them to her. That was my dad. But this is the man, and you know where I'm going with this. This is the man who told me about Jesus. This is the man, this is my dad, Dado, who prayed for me. This is the man who would give me good counsel, even though when that counsel might should have been much sterner than it ended up being. Because see, when my back was really up against any wall, emotionally when I was spent, when I did something stupid and I did my fair share of those things, when I really needed someone, you know who I called. And I didn't call him father. I called him dad I need you. Because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Yes, he is our father. But some point in your life, if you haven't hit it yet, you will. You will more than once. You will be in a position where you haven't been at any time in your life. You will have been praying for people. You would have been comforting people. And then all of a sudden, you're going to find yourself in a position where you're not going to make that visit in a hospital. You're staying in that hospital because you're about to have that procedure. Or you're not just saying that you're going to pray for someone whose life has fallen apart for no fault of their own and relationships will never be the same. But that's going to happen to you, perhaps. And you're going to find yourself on the other end of that issue of life. And when those things happen, what do we do? We don't go to God and pray in King James language, our Father who art in heaven. We say, God, Abba, I need you. Help me. And you know, he's got all the details covered. Father, we give thanks for this day and we thank you for the opportunity to think of you 
through the pages of Scripture, to see life through the lens of your word. Help us to make the choices that show our love and adoration for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. An invitation closes our service today. For it could well be that there are some people here in this room that you got a problem. What's wrong? You're lost. You're sin sick. You need help. Who did God send? Jesus. Why did Jesus come? To redeem us. To purchase our lives. He's already paid that price on the cross. And the step we must take in faith is to cross that line of faith and ask Jesus to come into our lives and to heal us, to forgive us, to become followers of Christ. I'm going to give you that opportunity this morning. We're going to have ministers and deacons who will be standing here ready to help pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord just hadn't told anyone, hadn't professed your faith in him. Do you need to do that? Yes. Why? Because the scripture says to do so. Maybe you've yet to be baptized as a believer like Colin Mershon did at the beginning of our service. We want to give you that opportunity to make that, <clears throat> make that a choice that we'll schedule so that you can obey the command of Jesus and identify with him in believer's baptism. Maybe God would lead you to join this church today. Maybe this is where you need to belong. Maybe it's where you need to find connections. Maybe you are a faithful attender, but you think it's now time to go ahead and step across and make that commitment to become a part of our church family officially. But then maybe for many of us, maybe it's that idea that I spend far too much time treating God as a heavenly father when really what I want to say to him is, Dad, Abba, help me. Trusting. Because I said it once, said it twice, said it several times. We know. We can trust him. Why? Because he's got the details covered. That's our invitation. We stand together. We sing. Won't you step out? Won't you come forward right now? <laughs>